There are those tales that everyone knows to be true. Stories that are told over and over again, and they are assumed fact. But are they? Today I look at three food stories, and in each case I thought I knew the story. Join me today as I explore the shocking truth of the potato chip, the TV dinner, and the New England lobster on the 168th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Are you glad to have me back? Here I am, all rested and ready for another season of storytelling. Before we get started, I need to thank the Fries, Nancy and Gordon, for filling in over the last month or so. If you haven't listened to episodes 166 and 167, please do so. On the second part of Stories with Chooch, Gordon tells some great historical stories that his family was involved in. Find out about his parents and how they witnessed the Hindenburg and the Enola Gay. Thanks again, Nancy and Gordon. Now, what have I been doing over the last five or six weeks? Relaxing. I was able to come up with some ideas for upcoming shows... And I think I've got some interesting ones for this year, but still I could use more. So feel free to send me your ideas. Now I wanted to do the first show of 2019 with something light. And I knew some stories of some food that I thought were interesting. So I went with that. But what I didn't expect was that there were doubts to all three of these stories from what I knew and from what is commonly believed. Each one worked out the same. I found source after source basically telling me the story I already knew. Suddenly, however, I found someone who said, Not so fast. The story you think you know might not be right. The thing is, the authors that contradict the traditional telling of the story hold a little more weight with me because, well, as far as I can tell from my chair in front of my computer, they did the research. They just didn't repeat the common myth. Does that make them right? Of course not. But I'll take that over somebody who doesn't even tell you where they got their information from. And while we're talking about that, and since this is my first show of the new year, I will remind listeners that I tell stories based on the information I get from the internet and books. While I love to do real research, it's just not possible, so I depend on the research of others. And I tell as much as I can in about 20 minutes, which means it's probably not the whole story. My goal is just to tell a good story and make it as truthful as possible. But this is history, and in most cases, truth isn't black or white, but various shades of gray. Anyway, it's time for me to get on with a few stories about food. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. They make eating so simple. 
First, open the package, take out the aluminum tray, or aluminium tray for those in England, remove the cover, place in the oven for the time specified in the instructions, and there you have it, a complete meal. Meat, vegetable, potatoes, and possibly a dessert. You can eat it right out of the tray. So when done, the only cleaning necessary are the fork, knife, and maybe a glass. Yes, I'm talking about the TV dinner. If you think about it, the name itself, TV Dinner, is sort of strange. I remember them being a big deal when I was a kid, and I also remember them not being very tasty. I don't know how popular they are now, but they're still sold in stores, so I guess someone is eating them. I'm pretty sure back in the 1950s, mothers across America loved the convenience of having a break from cooking the nightly meal. The first full-year TV dinners were in production. Ten million turkey dinners were sold. And speaking of turkey, it all started because there was too many of them after the Thanksgiving of 1952. The C.A. Swanson and Son Company overestimated on the amount of turkeys they were going to sell for the holidays and ended up with 260 tons of turkeys left over. Of course, the first order of business was how to store all these birds so they wouldn't go bad. This was accomplished by packing them all in refrigerated train cars and sending them up north where it was cold. Still, they wouldn't keep until next Thanksgiving, so they had to figure out what to do with all these turkeys left over. That job went to salesman Gary Thomas. An idea struck him one day while he was visiting the food kitchen of Pan American Airways. It was there he noticed the aluminum trays they used for airline meals. On the way home, he sketched a design for a three-compartment tray that served both as a cooking pan and a serving tray. I spent five years in the service, so I knew what a mess kit was, he said in a 1999 Associated Press interview. You could never tell what you were eating because it was all mixed together. At first, his idea was laughed at, but with 260 tons of turkeys riding around in train cars, costing the company lots of money... They were desperate for any idea. So the first TV dinners produced contained peas, sweet potatoes, cornbread stuffing, and of course, turkey. The whole meal could be cooked up in 25 minutes. But why the name TV dinner? While the television in the 1950s was considered a luxury item, something that everyone wanted, so Gary thought attaching his new meal to the new electronic wonder would help sales, and it also made it feel a bit futuristic. That's the accepted story, the one Gary Thomas told, but not so fast. The Swanson Company said the invention of the TV dinner was the invention of the Swanson brothers. Even Gary said, I didn't really invent the dinner. I invented the tray and how it could be served, coined the name, and developed the unique packaging. Betty Cronin A bacteriologist who was working for the Swanson Brothers at the time said the TV dinner, including the name, was the invention of the Swanson Brothers themselves, Gilbert and Clark Swanson. Of course, one might ask that, was this something the brothers told her? And I want to stress that I have no real proof or opinion either way, no horse in this race, but could it be possible that the brothers got their idea from Gary and ran with it, acting as if it was their idea? Who knows? There's a Los Angeles Times article called False Tales of Turkey on a Tray, Even in Death, a Charlatan Served Up a Lot of Bologna from July 35, 2005. It disputes Gary Thomas' story. 
Much of the article seems to point at the fact that Gary's dates of when things happened don't add up. I have a few thoughts about this. First, it was published soon after Thomas's death in 2005, which doesn't give him a chance to defend himself. And second, when Gary told a story, he was recounting events that happened 30 years earlier. So yes, getting dates wrong and maybe some of the finer details can be expected. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Swanson family would want to take full credit for their most successful product. The truth is, I don't know, but I'll give Gary Thomas the benefit of the doubt. But here's another twist. There was already a TV dinner-like product on the market well before the Swanson TV dinners. In 1949, Albert and Meyer Bernstein organized Frozen Dinners, Inc., which packaged frozen dinners on aluminum trays with three compartments, but they were only marketed in the Pittsburgh area. Also, Quaker State Foods had produced and sold over 2,500,000 frozen dinners before Swanson. The Swanson Company is considered the inventors of the TV dinner for two reasons. They used a massive marketing campaign to promote their dinners, and they called them TV dinners, a name that stuck. Nutritional anthropologist Dora Dunchin told the Christian Science Monitor in 2004 that in the 50s, society became very futuristic. We wondered what our lives would be like in the year 2000. We were very interested in technology and machinery. People embraced TV trays and TV dinners not because it was good food, it was awful, but because it was futuristic and convenient. And here's a contribution these meals might have made to our society. The National Woman's Historical Museum points out at how TV dinners might have contributed to feminism. TV dinners did more than feed families. Their convenience and quick cooking time gave women, who usually did all the cooking, more time of their own to pursue jobs and other interests, while still providing a hot meal for their families. One of the first advertisements for Swanson featured a woman pulling a Swanson dinner out of a grocery bag and promising her husband, I'm late, but dinner won't be. In his 1999 American Press interview, Thomas recalled receiving complaints. I remembered getting hate mail from men who wanted their wives to cook from scratch like their mothers did. Women got used to the idea of freedom that men always had. Now, you gals think you're lucky you can get Swanson TV turkey dinners, but I say Swanson TV turkey dinners are a bigger break for husbands. Now, you take me. I can be early, I can be late, I can bring pals to dinner anytime I please, and get this, my wife never panics. And that is because Mary Lou knows that she can have a, a swell dinner ready in just 25 minutes and talk about easy. Well, she just pops Swanson TV turkey dinners in a hot oven. You know, they're oven ready in individual heat and serve trays. With Swanson TV turkey dinners, you just heat and serve, and you serve big and hearty slices of moist, tender Swanson turkey. Mm, Mother yeah. Murphy, lucky <laughs> me. My wife uses Swanson TV turkey dinners. And make your husband lucky, too. What's better than a food that we now put on a pedestal that was once thought to be garbage? I mean, people love to look back and laugh at just how silly people once were. This is the tale of the lobster. The story I was aware of is the same story I found all over the internet, including sites like the History Channel and Mental Floss, and it goes something like this. When European settlers first came to America, they found lobsters everywhere along the shore. But they were considered the cockroaches of the sea. 
They say these beasts were so plentiful that they would be stacked up on the beach two feet high. The poor lobster quickly got a reputation as a poor person's food. I mean, you had to be desperate to eat one of these large marine crustaceans. They were considered such trash that people who were forced to eat them would bury their shells as not to be found out. This garbage food, during the colonial era, was often saved for prisoners, slaves, apprentices, and kids. Some say that servants specified in employment agreements that they would not be served lobster more than twice a week. Lobsters were also used as fertilizer, fish bait, and food for pigs. The image of the lobster as a poor person's food began to change with the invention of the stamp can in 1847. This was the process of packing cooked food in hermetically sealed tins for future use. Once the lobster was in a can, it could be shipped to middle America, to people who didn't have the preconceived notion of it being horrible. They found it delicious. And once all those people started traveling by train to the New England area and got a taste for the real thing, freshly killed right out of the ocean, things changed and the lobster became a highly sought-after tourist food. Soon it started popping up on menus all over the Boston area and prices began to rise. The first lobster shack opened up in Vinyl Haven, Maine in 1876. The town is still home to a thriving lobster fishery, and by the early 20th century, lobster had become a delicacy. Now, like I said, I have heard this and read this many times. But then I came across a video by Sandy Oliver, a food historian. She had heard these stories too and decided to investigate to find out if they were really accurate. And she did what all good historians do, and that's attempt to go back to the original sources. And according to her, this take on the lobster isn't true. European settlers knew of the lobster before they arrived in the New World. The only difference being the ones on the Atlantic coast of the New World were a lot bigger than the ones they were used to, but they had no problem eating them. In fact, they ate a lot of them while waiting for supplies to arrive from Europe. She wrote, In the early 1700s, lobsters were valuable enough that they were caught in Long Island sounds and shipped to New York City to be sold live, and in Boston, where they were boiled shortly after being caught and peddled in the streets ready to use. It didn't take long for lobster stock to be fished out in southern New England, and by the middle 1800s, Boston vessels visited the Maine coast to buy lobsters for the Boston market. Maine fishermen supplied them as they do today. Within a few years, canneries opened along the coast and lobster meat was one of their products. She searched and searched for some evidence that lobster was given to prisoners and could find nothing. And as far as the story of servants specifying in employment agreements that they would not eat lobster more than twice a week, well, that isn't supported by research either. In fact, as far as she could tell, these stories were never even told until the 20th century. And before that, these stories were told about salmon. And the stories about salmon, they aren't true either. Now, as far as the lobster being used as fertilizer, well, it's partly true, but it wasn't the whole lobster. It was the lobster shell. The shell worked great as fertilizer, and the canneries were happy to give the shells to the farmers just to get rid of them. But if someone were to visit Maine and saw all those lobster parts in a farmer's field, they may have assumed that they were using the whole beast. And the same goes for pigs. Apparently, pigs love to eat the shells. And Sandy tells the first-hand experience with seeing pigs eat lobster shells. 
And again, one might get the wrong idea and think, look at those silly people, they're feeding their pigs lobsters. I've watched two lectures of Sandy Oliver, each one's about 45 minutes long, and I'll have links to them in my show notes for this episode. She has a lot more to say about the subject than I could possibly tell here. Now, why should I believe Sandy over all the other stories that I've read? Because she did the research. And now, how about a few lobster facts according to History.com? American lobsters, or Maine lobsters as they are commonly known, can weigh more than 40 pounds and grow up to 3 feet long. The largest lobster on record was caught off Nova Scotia in 1988. It weighed in at 44 pounds and was 42 inches long. Scientists believe it was at least 100 years old, twice the lifespan of the average lobster. The lobster, which has changed little over the last 100 million years, is known for its unusual anatomy. The brain is located in its throat, the nervous system in its abdomen, its teeth in its stomach, and its kidneys in its head. It also hears by using its legs and tastes with its feet. One of the few things lobsters have in common with humans? They favor one limb, which means they can be right or left clawed. When crowded into tight corners, such as a store display tank, lobsters tend to become cannibalistic. That's why sellers tightly ban their claws, to prevent them from feasting on their neighbors. I smell something fishy! At the Discount Seafood Warehouse, in Boston proper. proper. Did somebody say clam bake? Clam bake! Did somebody say lobster? Lobster! Did somebody say crab legs? Crabs! If you buy a lobster that's 12 or 13 pounds, you're eligible to get shot by us with your Alka-Seltzer cannon. You'll know you're there when you start smelling something fishy. I have a dream. You see, whenever I eat potato chips, I wish I could have a whole bag of well-done, overly-cooked chips. When I reach into the bag and pull out one that is brown and overcooked, I love it. My dream is the day when Frito-Lay sells a bag of well-done potato chips. And now the accepted story of the origin of the potato chip, and it goes something like this. At the time of its invention, in the middle 19th century, the French fry was a popular food. It was sweeping the country. So it was on the 23rd of August, 1853, in a restaurant called Moon's Lake House in Saratoga Springs, New York, that the potato chip came into existence. A man, who many believe was Cornelius Vanderbilt, ordered a plate of fries. The cook, African-American George Crumb, brought him a plate of golden fried potato strips. The customer complained, saying they were too thick, too soggy, and not salty enough. Crumb tried again and again, but the customer was still unhappy. So in an effort to make a point, he sliced them as thin as possible, fried them, and then gave them a thick layer of salt. He expected the customer to hate them and send them back, but to his surprise, he actually loved them. Eventually, the new snacks became a regular item at the restaurant and were called Saratoga Chips. After not too long, you could buy Saratoga Chips in stores. Like the story of the lobster, this tale is everywhere on the internet, and it may not be as factually accurate as many claim it to be. 
Now for this one, I looked it up on Snopes, the internet's favorite site for debunking information. According to Snopes, there is plenty of reason to doubt this tale. First of all, George Crumb never made the claim that he invented the potato chip. In fact, it wasn't even mentioned in his obituary. Those stories emerged many years after his death. It is believed Crumb was the type of person who, if he invented the potato chip, would have let the world know. David Mitchell, the former director of the Brookside Museum in Saratoga County, said that never in his life did Crumb take credit for it, and if he invented it, he would have said so because he was not a humble man. But here's the kicker. The potato chip, as far as we can tell, was created at Moon's Lake House in Saratoga Springs, and George Crumb probably had something to do with it. According to the book Crunch, The History of the Great American Potato Chip by Dirk Burhans, George's sister, Katie Speck Wicks, and by the way, Speck is Crumb's real last name, was also working in the restaurant. She was peeling potatoes when a slice of the potato fell in the deep fryer. The deep fryer at the time was cooking crullers. When she fished it out, George tasted it and said, Hmm, that's good. How did you make it? In fact, Katie Wick's obituary in 1917 credits her as the inventor of the potato chip. Now, there are other variations of this tale, including Katie learning how to make it from her brother-in-law, or Carrie Moon, proprietor of the lake house, inventing them, or maybe his wife. But one thing people are pretty sure of, it was at Moon's Lake House where the potato chip really took off. On top of that, the earliest known recipe for something similar to today's potato chip is in William Kitchener's cookbook, The Cook's Oracle, first published in 1817, which was a bestseller in England and in the United States. In the 1822 edition, there's a recipe called Potatoes Fried in Slices or Shavings, and reads... Peel large potatoes, slice them about a quarter of an inch thick, or cut them into shavings round and around like you would peel a lemon. Dry them well in a clean cloth, and fry them in lard or dripping. So, who gets credit for the potato chip? Well, you tell me. We'll probably never know unless we get our hands on one of those tartises. Then we'll know everything, right? Until then, remember, take everything you're told or that you read, especially on the internet, with a grain of salt. And that includes Coffee with Jeff. Ooh, that's the wise old owl giving us some tips. A wise hostess serves wise potato chips for party success. Guest happiness, just pour in the bowl. Let the party roll with wise potato chips. Ooh, wise potato chips. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go, I just wanted to say that it's actually nice to be back. It was nice having the time off, but after a while, I, I really felt I was missing doing Coffee with Jeff stories. It's it's actually hard to believe that I'm going on five years now of doing this. And uh, like I said, I could use some more story ideas for this year. And, and you know where to get a hold of me, Twitter, Facebook, my email. I'll have all the information in the ending credits if you stay around that long. I'm excited to hear that Gordon and Nancy are thinking about doing new episodes of What's in a Name. I always enjoyed that podcast, and I miss it, as I miss the history files. Now, when I took December off, I had this idea that I would 
rework Coffee with Chef, come up with some new music, maybe format the show a little differently, that type of thing, you know. But now in early January, I'm back to doing Coffee with Jeff, and I'm pretty much doing it exactly the same way I did it last year. If I had come up with any new format ideas that I thought would really make the show better, I would have done it, but just nothing hit me. There was no reason to change. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You know, we at the Psycon Network could use your support. You can be one of the good people by supporting us at Patreon. You can go to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. Just a couple of bucks a month will really help. And thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows, like Pint Notes if you're into rock and roll and beer. Becca and Josh are always a good time. You can find that and other shows over at Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Like I said, you can leave story ideas for me at any of those places. You want to support the show, but you don't have the coin? Then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to Gordon and Nancy for filling in the last month, to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, And to all of you who listen to this show, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on social media. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with something thrilling and exciting. At least, I hope. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff I once knew a man who Used to drink his coffee black He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Some coffee with